On this episode of Stories Behind the Grind, listen to my conversation with Melissa Yu, founder of Australia's largest streetwear and lifestyle expo. We discuss how to develop self-awareness in yourself and your team, how to foster positivity as an entrepreneur, and the importance of speaking up and about mental health. My name is Aidan Vokolo, and here you will find business strategies, tips, and tactics that you can incorporate not only in your own venture, but your life to help you simplify and strategically grow, scaling up the impact you're having in this world. Listen as I talk to creators, innovators, and game changers on what it takes to build an impactful business, uncovering their insights, strategies, and tips to help you increase profitability and develop a thriving team culture. Welcome to the Stories Behind the Grind podcast. Melissa, thanks so much for coming on the Stories Behind the Grind podcast. It's great to have you on. Thanks so much, Aidan. Really appreciate the opportunity. So, yeah. No problems. <laughs> Melissa, you're the founder of MCO Events and of Australia's largest streetwear and lifestyle expo. And you have extensive knowledge around personal and company branding with a focus on the community. And you harness culture and values to build solid foundations. Tell me, what was the lead up like to starting your own company a couple of years ago? How far, how much time have we got, Aiden? Um, I guess for me and the, the start of entrepreneurship and the start of building a business was I, I grew up never really having that in my mind. I don't think I ever had the, the dream or the vision that I wanted to start my own business. Never really. I don't have an entrepreneurial background, don't have a history or a family of entrepreneurship. But how I kind of got started came from an emotional, it was an emotional trigger. I think I was quite frustrated in the work environment that I was working in at the time back in 2017. And after jumping through a few jobs in the hospitality scene and then jumping in psychology and really trying to find my feet in things. And then the last sort of job that I had I was there for four and a half years running running trade shows and exhibitions in the tattoo industry space. And I just became quite frustrated in the workplace culture, which then led me to, I guess it was a blessing in disguise because it led me to take that leap of faith and go, you know what, I actually think I can create a more harmonious workplace and a more harmonious work culture that aligns with my values and my ethos. So that's kind of how I got started in the event space in a, in a nutshell. But yeah, for me, never really expected to get here, kind of just fell into it. And if anything, it was it was like I was just pulled into it from a series of unfortunate events. So you were talking about having a harmonious work culture. What does that look like for you? Yeah, good question. So I guess what I felt in my previous workplaces and jumping around, I knew what like a non-harmonious workplace culture was. Like I knew what I didn't want and I knew what I didn't like, which then I guess drew me to then creating this sort of space. So for me, having a good workplace culture, culture is such a buzzword now too. Like it's like we've got good workplace culture and you go in and it's like, yeah, you have a ping pong table and you have, you know, bean bags. I don't so much mean like that. For me, workplace culture and a good culture is where a team is driven by the same vision and the same goal. They share the the same macro goal, essentially, of what what the business's why is, what the business's purpose is, why they exist, and the story behind that. So people that really believe in that vision, that's kind of the core of a good team, I believe. And then on top of that, having transparency and communication between each person and very, very clear roles and responsibilities between the team as well. So that for me, my business now, my team and I, we all have very, very different skill sets. 
which allows for some beautiful debates and contrasts in ideas. And I think that's where the best work comes from, having those differences, but playing to our strengths as well. How did you, I guess, come out about knowing where each of your sort of strengths lie? How did you develop that awareness of, you know, not only yourself, but allowing your team to develop that self-awareness so everyone knows where their sort of arc of responsibility is? So yeah, 100%. It comes down to one, being fully aware. I went on a self-awareness journey and started looking internal. Over the course of these relatively traumatic events, I had to go through this journey of self-awareness. So I became quite in tune to what was I good at? What was I not? And having that humility to then find people to fill those gaps. So I think I always had that starting off kind of going, oh, like that doesn't work for me or this is not how I learn. Understanding myself so much so that I know, yeah, I know where I'm going to flourish most. That's how I kind of went through it. And then, yeah, I guess when you trial and error so many things and know what your strengths aren't. So when we talk about weaknesses, I found those people to fill those gaps quite quickly. So matching, I guess, matching my values had to be really important, but then playing to that person's strengths that potentially were my weaknesses. Yeah. And I guess along that sort of comes with the humility of being able to find the people that are stronger where you're weak and being able to sort of use them, not not use them, but I guess um, let them flourish and let them develop to harness their strengths to complement your weaknesses instead of seeing it as an attack on, on you as a person. Yeah, I think you have to go in and approach things with a collaboration point of view instead of a competition. And I've kind of always had that. I think in terms of business, I think there's enough success for everyone out there. And there's some healthy competitive sort of traits, but majority of how I built everything that I've built and where I've come from, it's a real collaborative approach rather than competition. So when I reached out to my team initially, it it is a really small startup and a really small events agency. So we're by name, I suppose, a boutique events agency where we create corporate events or an event for a client from concept to delivery. But my strengths were operations. My strengths were like customer relations and building that. But my weaknesses per se was potentially talent management is one that I had to fill in pretty quickly. We do a lot of fashion runways with Ego Expo. So I had to fill in a role of talent management and also stage production quite quickly because I did not have... Not that I didn't have the skills, but I did not have the time or the passion in that area of my business. But I knew someone else would and that creative space would allow someone to essentially be an entrepreneur in an entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, it definitely. It's yeah, great that you've had that awareness to be able to do that and put it all together. Now, Melissa, you've had quite a, um, a tumultuous upbringing. Can you go back to sort of where, where it all began for you? Sort of take us back to what life was like growing up. Yeah. So I'm Chinese. I'm a Chinese-born Australian here. Parents both migrated here from Hong Kong when they were 24 and then had me at 26. So At the time when they came here in the 90s, I guess there was a huge influx of... We've always been a huge influx of multiculturalness. So as immigrants, my family landed and we settled in a small town called Patterson Lakes. And how I describe Patterson Lakes is you you need to think of like Summer Bay in Home and Away or um, something on Neighbours. It was really... It was very, very Western. It was along the coast and... It was just at a time that there was not that much of a Chinese community down that way near Franks and Mornington Peninsula in Victoria. And I guess for me, growing up dealing with just skin color differences, not saying I had a chip on my shoulder, but I was very different from the get-go. And as a kid, when you're growing up, 
it's kind of like a, a prerequisite in a teenager or an adolescent as a kid. You try the thing that we focus on is trying to fit in. We're trying to find out who our crowd is. We're trying to find out who our community is and where we belong within those communities. So in school, I really struggled to actually feel like I belonged in any community because I didn't have anyone that looked like me. And that's kind of what I tried to really do at the beginning of my childhood was really be essentially be less Asian. Not that I could do that, but that was kind of where my unconscious or subconscious mind would go, which was like, be less Asian, don't eat sort of Asian foods around my Western mates. Like, just tell people you're mixed in terms of cultural background. I was like saying I was half Asian and half white, which is a complete lie. <laughs> so I was, I don't think I was being really authentic growing up, which was really, really hard as a, as a kid growing up at 13, 14, 15. So, that was a big challenge for me. And then my parents divorced when I was only three years old. It might seem pretty common now, like our oh, parents are divorced. Okay. But I guess when I was dealing with it, my parents divorced and then my mom moved interstate to Sydney. And as a kid, that's pretty hard because for me, mom was like gone. And even though it's just an hour and an hour and a half flight now from Melbourne to Sydney, for me, mom had left. So dealing with that sort of separation from a mother and daughter tie at a, such a young age really, really impacted me. It impacted my growing up and I didn't have anyone there to tell me that actually no mom loves you. Like my parents did the best that they could with the skills that they had, but no one essentially told me what was going on. So as a child, I took a lot of that blame on as well. Yeah. So that's kind of like the most of my childhood in terms of family matters and coming into this self-awareness, finding my identity. But other than that, I, I actually think I grew up as an all right kid, happened to love, happened to love being academic on my own. No one really pushed me. It wasn't like as a Chinese background, I had to study law or a doctor or accounting. It wasn't anything like that. I actually had quite a lot of freedom because dad was always at work and mum wasn't even home. But that sense of freedom, I actually look back now and at I think I'm only kind of realizing and saying it out loud here for the first time, but I actually needed boundaries. I actually needed like parental figures to kind of teach me from right or wrong. I almost had so much freedom because everyone was so busy. My parents were always, you know, out there trying to get food on the table and dad, dad owned a small Chinese restaurant. So we lived quite humbly, but it was always like work, work, work. You got to work and then you got to save. And I was kind of left, me and my brother, my older brother were left to kind of just grow up on our own and figure things out. So that whole part of that kind of was how I built my independence because we just had to, there was no other way. We didn't have, we didn't have anything like family dinners growing up. I don't have any memories of that. My, my memories are like me making my sandwich, going to high school and then me catching a bus home. I might go away at night at a friend's house and I wouldn't need to tell anyone because even when I came home, no one realized I was gone for the night, essentially. So when I look back at that, there's a real, there's a real loss of childhood there. There's a real loss of um, when growing up should be about family and um, having those figures around as role models. I, I guess I missed out on a lot of that and I had to just build my own models. So that was kind of, yeah, hopefully that like, was a very long way of going through my, my early childhood. Yeah, it was. Thank you yeah. for um, for being really authentic and be really vulnerable, sharing with the audience. Yeah, that was surprisingly <laughs> hard for me. Sorry, Aiden. No, no, please, please don't be. Please no don't. really reflection piece there. <laughs> yeah, that's honestly the probably the most, that is the most vulnerable and authentic uh, backstory I've heard on the show today. So thank you for being so, so raw. You mentioned having 
what stuck out for me is the not having any boundaries with, you know, because obviously growing up, typically you'd have parents, you know, whose responsibility, I guess, is to, to show you where those boundaries are and to not have them, but then puts a lot of confusion around who you are and who you're becoming as, as a person and developing yeah. that identity. How did you forge your own identity with, I guess, all the chips stacked against you? Not well. Um, yeah, I really struggled, I think, finding my place. And to be honest, I've only done a lot of that real cool work now in my adulthood life because at such an early age, at 16, 17, 18, it's all about your rites of passage and figuring out your place in the world. But for me, without no serious identity or belonging, it was sink or swim, but it was like just trialing everything. I think I ended up hanging out in the wrong social circles growing up. There were parts of my lifestyle that weren't positive, but there was no one else to tell me that that wasn't positive. So going out late at, late at night, at 18, I hit the club straight away. I was all amongst sort of those social scenes of like, who's who, drinking, alcohol and drugs. There was a lot of that sort of aspect of just kind of trying to figure my way out and not having anyone to report to was really, really hard. But where I guess I did find a lot of my identity was I fell in love at 18. I uh, finished school in 2008. And that summer straight away, I met a boy and his, you know, his name was Angus. And we, we just connected straight away and he was my rock star. And I look back now and it was probably he really, he was my healer in a lot of ways at the time that I needed him to be. It was like, two lost souls because he had his own story and journey as well. But growing up, it was like, oh my God. And then now I found someone that can kind of go through this crazy thing we called life with. And maybe he can kind of give me those boundaries or place in the world by just falling in love and that young love mentality and, and all that emotion. So that was kind of how I became a young adult between I was then with Angus from 18 to 23. And for five and a half years, that huge chunk of my life, I guess, was when I started going, okay, well, who am I? What am I doing? And even then, I don't think I really figured it out. I just kind of was growing up and trying things. I knew I loved people, which is why I went into studying psychology. But a huge part of studying psychology was from my upbringing. I wanted to do like children's counseling. And when you look back at my story, it's like, oh, well, go figure. But I had that story of not having parents. So I really wanted to be working with children and I wanted to help children talk about it because I didn't get that opportunity to talk about potentially how I felt when my parents divorced. And I still struggle with some of that stuff today. But yeah, at that time it was like, oh, well, I'll just invest it into my career. So I studied psychology. But yeah, I think we're always figuring out our identity. I don't know if that's a, if that's a finite thing. I think our identity ebbs and flows and shifts and progresses and we're influenced by new things and people leave and people come and we're always adding into that identity of who we are. Yeah, definitely. The, the world is in a state of flux and I guess so are we as humans. We're always developing and moving towards or away from things. So we're always becoming, you know, becoming more, I guess, in, in a sense and slowly yeah, I mean, just uncovering, you know, more, more parts of us as, as we go along. That's it. That's exactly right. I really resonate with that. It's like we're always just becoming. It's like end of sentence, even though we're as humans, we're so like, but becoming what? And where are we going? And what, like, what's the finished goal? And what's the end goal? And as I've gotten older and hopefully wiser, and I'm only 29, but as the years sort of come together, I'm realizing that it's like actually 
everything that we're learning, it's that journey piece. It's not so much about that end goal and when we finish because that time will come and it will come whether we want it or not. But it's that it's those moments between and these moments of impact that can really, you know, create who we are. Yeah, definitely. 100%. I wanted to link it all back now to entrepreneurship because obviously entrepreneurship can be quite a lonely journey and, you know, it can be with it comes a lot of freedom as well. What do you recommend for business owners that are, you know, going through stages of their business where they're, they're feeling a bit isolated, a bit lonely, you know, that there's not many people for them to talk to? What would be your recommendations for them? Yeah. See, I think entrepreneurship can be, there are elements of it that can be lonely, but it comes down to perspective as well. And it comes down to like how open you are to reach out. Because if you wanted to, there are so many networks and communities now, especially with the access to the internet. So you do not have to feel so alone. But 100%, if you choose the road of entrepreneurship, well, for what it means to me is it means you're a risk taker and it means you are a problem solver and that not anyone is just going to resonate with that. If you're like, if you're a game changer, there's going to be some kickback in that. And there's always going to be pressures of not belonging and also self-doubt and all of that sort of stuff. So being able to combat that and making that road less lonely is talking about it and reaching out to the communities around. So if you're like, there are communities out there. We just need to, you just need to Google it or you need to find it. Cause if you want, for example, like in the startup world, there are so many startup communities that you can now be a part of. And once you're a part of those communities and those groups, we're human animals, we're social beings. So there is someone out there, although at times it may not feel like it, but there is people out there that have gone through what you've gone through and at the exact same stages where you are and also have been at the stage you are and now have passed it. There's just so many people that you can seek mentorship and communication and conversations with through a channel and a platform that will suit you too. So if it's like audio is how you're going to learn, jump on podcasts and start listening to those podcasts and content. If you like to read, there are so many books out there from brilliant authors that have got lived experience of wherever you are visual, there's documentaries, there's videos, and then above all else, there's face-to-face meetups, which you can build some serious connections and friendships with through that. So I think how you're going to combat that loneliness is shifting your perspective and understanding you're in a world full of opportunity and there are people out there that despite how you might feel in the present like of loneliness, you're not. Whenever, and if we're all alone, then are we really alone? Uh, that, that's a really good point. Yeah, often it does just come down to perspective and realizing that, you know, there are people out there that can, you know, all you need to do is ask or all you need to do is go in search of. Yeah, because if you want to think, whatever you want to think is actually going to become true anyway. I'm a big believer in that. So it's like if you if you want to see that this world is a lonely place, you'll find it. You'll find that loneliness and you'll find that solitude and because you're looking for it. But if you want to see the world as full of color and opportunity and there's heaps of people out there willing to help, I believe that those people will really resonate and come and find you anyway. Definitely. Melissa, you're a, um, you're a mental health advocate. Tell me a bit more about that. Yes. So um, I am a huge mental health advocate. I, I put mental health in the forefront of everything, even in my business and in my relationships and my friendships. And that's one from my early childhood upbringing. I was already really drawn to that sort of early level of understanding that that I just had so many emotions as a kid. Like 
And I wasn't someone that like suppressed my emotions either. I was, I cried a lot. I yelled a lot. I screamed. I threw things. My emotions came and lashed out in unexpected ways. So, and I think that came from not knowing who I was and not understanding sort of the lessons that have been handed to me. So I was a victim to my story for a while. But then the biggest thing for me and the biggest learning curve for me was Gus, who was my, like I was saying, my first love and my first partner from 18 to 23. Gus died by suicide in January 2014. And us living together, like like it's still really hard for me five years on now. And I, I don't know if it gets that much easier, but I'm able to process it a little bit more. But when I, the night that I found Gus in our garage, that was, that was um, such a big fork in the road for me. And at 23, most people are still going out and partying and socializing. But for me at 23, I was planning my 23 year old boyfriend's funeral. And that in, in itself, comes up with just so many questions and challenges and blame and shame and suicide such a still such a hard topic and often taboo topic that because we don't understand it we just can't fully comprehend that a species can turn around and take their own lives we're the only species that can do that no other animal sets off and tries to kill themselves so humans and mankind and our brain is just it's just so crazy and so deep and there's just so many layers to that. And that's kind of where my own personal lived experience from that journey really shaped this advocacy in this mental health space. And I strongly believe I can be an authority in this space because I've had it from both ends. I've been a sufferer to mental health challenges and going through my own mental health of anxiety and depression, but then also being bereaved by suicide. I've seen it in other people. So I've also seen it from myself as a caregiver, if that makes sense. So I've kind of had a double-edged sword in the world of what mental health is. And mental health, actually everyone has it, but I mean mental illness and mental challenges. Not everyone can go down that far. And I guess the further down the rabbit hole you go, go it can lead to something as final as suicide. Yeah, it's, it's something that doesn't get spoken about too much. It seems like everyone... Everyone tries to put on a facade, a fake personality to, to get through it all and, and not really talk about, you know, the issues or the problems that they're facing internally. What do you think can be done to beat that stigma, to make it more okay to talk about these issues that we, you know, that, that everyone either has experienced or may experience in the future? Yeah, definitely things like this. I think someone like you having a platform and a community, offering and then sharing your space with someone like myself that type of genuine connection and then sharing that is how we start. We break the stigma by acknowledging that it exists. It's like the elephant in the room. I feel like for a long line of history, you know, suicide was was a crime. So if we look at what history was, people used to say commit suicide because suicide was actually a crime. Taking your own life was illegal. And then over time, we've actually shifted that and our values and our thoughts have changed around it. But yet it's been thousands of years where it was seen as such a bad thing and we now still carry on some of that. Hopefully, I think in the future, these social values will change. The more we become educated in this topic, the more we start looking into mental health compared to compared to our lovely friend, physical health. You know, physical health, if you're into the gym, you know about it. Everyone's always, you know, talking about how they're bettering their physical health or how they're eating well, all of that sort of stuff. But no one talks about that internal work, which 
they kind of go hand in hand. If anything, mental health has a huge, huge part to play in physical health. So starting the conversation, having campaigns like Are You Okay Day, having these sort of like days where we can dedicate to mental health and well-being and positivity, that's how we start those conversations. But then I think education is how we really break down the stigma. Having conversations like this and having just having a conversation about it and not feeling like you can't talk about it, that's a huge thing. If someone, you have a vulnerable person that's coming up to you that potentially doesn't know how to talk about this and you show them that you're there ready and able to listen, not to give them any professional advice, but just to kind of accept their pain and then accept what they're going through mentally that opens up a whole nother thing, a whole nother amount of layer of trust. And if you can do that and have no judgment in it, that person's really going to appreciate you and acknowledge just what you did for them. It's huge. Yeah, that, that can't be understated. It's it's so important to just be that safe space for those, you know, for those around you that might be going going through it. And I think when a vulnerable person, I've done this myself, when people come out and they reach out and say, hey, I'm actually not doing okay. More often than not, they just need that safe space to then talk about it. They don't even want you to solve their problem. They, I don't think people even open up so that you can go, oh, well, you know, you got to do this, this and this, and let's put an action plan together. And these are your next steps. It's so different to that. Mental health is this roller coaster of um, it ebbs and flows, exactly what we were just saying. It's never permanent. So that state of being, understanding that if everything is fleeting, if our emotions are just temporary, right here and now, if I'm struggling, I actually just need you to kind of listen. And I'll like, after I've talked it out, like we often find, even after a cry, I don't know, females mainly maybe, but it's like after a cry or after a talk with a good mate and feeling heard, sometimes that's all you need. And then you're like, wow, I'm good now. Don't worry. Like, I'm good. I'll just carry on and continue doing my own thing because I've now fueled up my cup again. And sometimes we just need that compassion and love from someone to fuel up our cup and keep going. Yeah. And compassion to one of your sort of key values that you live by and collaboration as well. So that they sort of go together in, in mm-hmm. being that, you know, being the safe person or safe space for other people to, to interact with. It's, it's so crucial. It's, it's so important. And, Especially, I love your points about not being judgmental and not trying to put an action plan together and not trying to fix the problem. It's just being being there for somebody else, showing empathy and, and understanding. Which is actually the hardest thing to do, Aiden. It's actually the hardest thing for us as human creatures to not want to so- like solve a problem because that's what we, we naturally do. We're problem solvers. It's like we need an answer. Like Our natural default state is like, Oh, well, I got to like, our brain wants to just wire things and find a solution and find an answer when in reality, there's so much of this world. That's why the world's so beautiful because we don't have all the answers and we don't know what's going to happen, you know, after death. And we don't know what's going to happen with a lot of things. We don't even know what's happening with tomorrow. So when mental health kind of comes in and actually being able to not have an answer for a friend that you so dearly want to help and you so dearly want them to get out of pain, you do anything for them. But finding an answer or making up an answer for them to help them along their way is probably one of the worst things you can do to, for someone when they weren't seeking that. Yeah, because it, it sure changes their whole experience. It trivializes what they're going through. Like a point about, you know, we've, we've got a tendency as humans to want to close the loop. Mm-hmm. We're so, mm-hmm. we're so that's why we love certainty because it's it's certain we know what's going to happen, and we sort of hate uncertainty because it's it's chaotic, it's unknown. We're not sure what's going to happen. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. 
it's really uncomfortable. Like it's like doing something for the first time as well. That fear of not knowing how to manage a situation or not being an expert in it. When in reality, it's like you just gotta you just gotta get in there and try, or you just gotta get in there and listen and not have a solution. That's uncomfortable for many. If for both, so someone opening up, that's uncomfortable because it might be their first time that they're opening up and being really, really vulnerable or like, like it makes me feel sick. <laughs> but then potentially telling it to someone and for that someone to have to hold that, that might be really uncomfortable. So it's this two level of discomfort, which then makes this topic so hard to talk about because it's just all uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's easy not to talk about it and, and to sweep it under the rug and either to ignore it or or to make it so trivial that it's, you know, an easy fix, but it's, it's really not. It's, there's so many layers that go beneath it, but it's so important to, to talk about it and to keep talking about it, not just once, not just on, on a day, but all around and, you know, every day. Yeah, exactly. Checking in is so important. I hope if anything from this conversation, if someone else is listening and all it does is encourage them to go, oh man, I'm going to message my mom or like I'm going to message a mate or I'm just going to check in on that one person. If that's all this achieves, gosh, we've done enough together and I'm pretty proud of that because that's what it is. It's just checking in on people, checking in on the ones that are the strongest too. The ones that we always assume that are sweet, they're the ones that need a lot more love and care because they're putting out so much of that energy. I'm always checking in on sort of my entrepreneurial friends or my friends that keynote speak. The ones that are giving so much of themselves in service, yeah, we need to be even more in tune and double down on that for them because they, it's it's a lot of responsibility as well to have to always be the giver. Yeah, definitely. It takes a lot out of you too. And if you're not filling up your cup and trying to energize and re-energize yourself, and, and to make sure that you're sort of on point and it's hard to keep giving and giving and giving. It's impossible. It's not sustainable either. Oprah, I think Oprah really, really said that. It's like you're doing yourself a disservice and the people that you, you serve a disservice because you cannot possibly keep giving and giving and giving. She uses this analogy that I really love about um, a teacup. So you have to fill up your cup and what you give to others is the overflow from that cup. What you give to people is what's in the saucer of your teacup. But that teacup's always got to be full for you. And that overflow is what you can give love, compassion, and endless kindness to others. And I just like, I really love that imagery. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a really good, it's a really good image and analogy to, to think about, you know, is your cup half full? Yeah. Is it fully full? Is it running on empty? You know, do you need to be a bit selfish so you can be selfless right. in the future? Correct. And it's it's that balancing act that, gosh, I mean, balance, another buzzword is, is so hard to achieve because balance looks so different for everyone. But if you've got self-awareness to kind of go, okay, I'm close to burning out, don't let yourself get to that end. Don't If you can see the signs of you burning out, don't get there because then, then you're out for three days and that's not doing anyone whatever business or journey that is, that's not doing anyone good. When you work yourself to the ground so much that you then get physically sick or you have to, you know, literally tune out and not be part of society for three days. And that's that comes again from experience because I've done that and I've realized I live a much more fuller, meaningful and purposeful life now by not burning myself out. Yeah. And sometimes it, it takes to go through those challenges to know where your sort of um where your thresholds are to know, okay, yeah. well if that's as much as I can push, you know, how can I recover before I get to that point again? How do you recover? So for me, it's quality time. Putting my partner says this now. My now partner, um, we kind of had a few moments where we struggled with our relationship because 
he has his own business and I have my own business. So every day outside when we're going out, we're at war. Like he's fighting his battles and I'm at my own battles. And it's like giving out energy, giving out energy, survival, survival, like axe and shield and all of that sort of good stuff because we're in these, we're really, really passionate about what we do. But then when we come home and would have this quiet time, maybe say 7, 8 p.m. when we both come back home, he's the one that I'm meant to care about the most and he's my loving partner and everything. But he said to me, he's like, Mel, you've you've gone out and given so much of your energy to everyone that by the time you're here, you have no energy left for me and same same as him. So we're both quite like exhausted out. And that we realized we had to really reframe because we we care about each other first and foremost. And actually, if I'm not giving my partner priority and love and care to how I give everyone else, I'm doing myself an injustice. And then what for? Because I'm building all of this stuff. We're building our empire because we can, so we can be together. So it was like quite contradictive. But once we had that real honest conversation, like actually, no, we can't be, we can't be giving us the last bits of drips and drabs of each other. That's not fair on our relationship. So reprioritizing that and giving myself quality time now, I will set aside time where it's just date night. So that's really important in my uh, personal relationship. And then in my friendships, we're like, I'll plan things well in advance because I can't, I can't do spontaneity so much just because of the workload. Everything's quite on a schedule, but scheduling in that quality time, whether it's with a friend or a family member or family dinner or your partner, scheduling it in and not moving it. Cause it's so easy for us to kind of prioritize other things like, especially gym. It's like, if you schedule gym, you're going to the gym and there's no other excuse. So I think putting that and making sure that I'm doing that and putting that in, it recharges my cup because quality time for me is once it's blocked in, it's blocked in and I'm not on my phone. So it's like having this conversation now, once I've scheduled this podcast, this is it. I'm present. I'm here. I'm giving you everything of me for this moment in time, because that's what I've scheduled. So understanding those energies and understanding that that's really how I look after myself. Just It allows me to be so much more present when back then I would kind of just have friends over, but I was like on my phone or like my emails would buzz and I'd, I'd then turn to that and go, oh, just a second, you know, like and think that I was multitasking really well. I don't. <laughs> I don't think we really do. So now just really understanding where my energy is, dedicating my time to that energy and then switching off to another activity and then giving that my 100%. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm the same. Quality time is so important. And quality time, I guess, like you said, it, it really just comes down to being being 100% present in the moment. And it's hard to do. For me, it's been, it's been a practice and it develops over time and I'm not perfect and I'm getting there. Mm-hmm. But it's, yeah, it's the more you can do it, I think, the more time seems to sort of slow down in a sense and it becomes more meaningful or at least that's what I found going through. Yeah. I love that because that's what it, time expands. It's like, whoa, what do you mean? Like we're all so busy, you know, that word like I'm busy. Yeah. It's like we've developed this society where it's really, really cool, good to be busy or it's just a natural state of being. But then when you actually break down your time and understand what that quality time looks like, yeah, the time expands. Life, it slows down. Yeah, it both slows it slows down in the moment, but it also goes quickly as well. You're like, oh wow, did an hour and a half already go by? Because it's meaningful. <laughs> it is. It is hundred yeah. percent. It's meaningful, and it's yeah. it's no one can multitask. Switching between tasks is is not multitasking. You can't multi think. Yes, 
Yes, exactly right. So there was an, there's heaps of studies on this, but it's saying like, you know, it's like when, you, when you're doing something on the computer and then say your phone rings and you go then to um, look at that phone, reply to the message and get back onto your task. In those two sort of moments where you switch from phone to computer to phone, like your brain uses a different part essentially. And like there's, there's actually times where it needs to re- configure and refocus. Whereas when you do a task straight away, you're actually like you're focused on it and your brain's still using that energy and that power. So when you're switching tasks, it's like it adds on minutes and it might not seem like much, but those minutes then turn into days and then you look back and you've wasted months. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's um it's a compounding effect. And you're like, you know, you can get so much more done just by single tasking. It's it's crazy, you know, how much time we can not well either waste or, you know, waste through multitasking. It's yeah. Yeah, no, I think we should change that. Even on resumes and stuff, I still see on CVs, it's like multitasking is a skill. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> Don't multitask. <laughs> oh, for sure. One other thing I want to talk to you about is positivity. So how do you how do you remain positive? And it probably comes down to perspective. I'm sure that's an element of it. But how else do you encourage positivity in your life, but also in the lives of the people you serve? Mm-hmm. I think for me, positivity is... It is that mindset game, but it's also understanding like the negativity is okay too. So it's it's really a spectrum. You cannot have the good without the bad and the bad without the good. You need it so that it helps you with that perspective. But you can always, and I'm sure because you've talked to so many entrepreneurs and stuff, but it's like you have a choice and you're in control of your own emotions and what's going on internally for you. You will always have that choice. And the only thing you can control really is that. So when you can master that control of like having a positive mindset and that will help you and guide you through any sort of hardship. And that's what builds resilience. It's how I got through my darkest days like, you know, losing someone so close to suicide and then going through all of that. If I didn't have the mindset that I adopted and that resilience, I wouldn't be here to be able to share these stories and then these words of encouragement with you and your audience today. And how I do that is I have to practice it every day. It doesn't come naturally to me. And for most humans, actually, like by default, we're negative creatures. It's really, really easy for us to focus on a negative. It's when we read reviews, it's like we might get heaps of good reviews and then one person writes some hate or gives you shade on your business and you'll, you know, your whole natural attention just draws to it because we're quite negative by default creatures. We're always looking for things that need fixing or doing or problem solving. That's kind of where our brains go. So if you can master that positivity by practicing gratitude every day, I think that really, really helps. It doesn't come naturally to me. So I have to have chunks of my day where I am putting in that positive energy. It's normally at the start of my day. And there's some routine things that really work for me. But I guess for anyone else, it's figuring out what works for you. What gives you the most amount of positive energy? For me, every day, it's making my bed. As soon as I've made my bed, I get a, it's like I get an endorphin hit because I just feel like I'm in control. And if I can control like making my bed, the rest of the day is okay because I've completed a task at hand. And I'm big on reflection words. I'm big on journaling. So again, that's something that works well for me as a writer. But for you, it might be something else. It might be listening to a podcast or listening to a motivation thing. That might not be it for you either. Or it might be it might be a good workout every day. Whatever it is that gives you that positive kick and you know that it does it time and time again, utilize that and making sure that that's part of your routine. That's how I would remain having a positive mindset. 
But at the same time, understanding that it's also okay to not be okay. And you can't be that, you just can't be that happy go lucky guy all the time because that's just not real. No, no, it's not real. You can't have 100% positivity all the time. And sometimes you need those negative times to understand, you need the contrast to understand the effect of, you know, the spectrum of positivity and negativity. Yeah. And that's, that's when you're most authentic. I think when people say, it's like, oh, you're so positive, Mel. I'm like, I think I'm just really authentic though, because I'm also not necessarily when I'm negative, but when I'm having a down day, if I can be fully transparent in that sadness and in that moment, but understanding fully aware that it's temporary, that's where I find my positive energy from because it's, I don't think I'm always advocating for positivity. I'm advocating that life has a million different ups and downs and you have, no, you have no idea where it's headed. But if you can adopt that resilience, you're set for everything. You're battle ready. Yeah, you can get through whatever challenge comes your way. Mm-hmm. Advance mm-hmm. plays a massive part in that. Melissa, a question I'd like to ask all guests, and I'd love to get your perspective of it, is what's your definition of the grind? The grind. It's resilience. I think it's... um. It's the cliche quote, but something, a mantra that I live by, it's fall down seven, get up eight. That for me is the grind. It's every time that you're in that arena, every time you're fighting and throwing another punch and getting hit, it's getting back up, wiping whatever sweat and lack of sleep it takes for you to achieve the bigger picture. For me, the grind, how I lead it is it's just, I'm in service to a vision that's much bigger than me. I'm in service to something that I'll probably leave and die before I see it come to fruition. But if I can play a part in that journey so that others after me can live a more fulfilling, meaningful, positive life, that is a grind that I'm willing to accept day in, day out until the day that I die. I love that. Thank you for sharing. Really, really love that. Where can people find more about you? I'm on all social platforms. I'm under, I think it's just Melissa Yu on my LinkedIn because that's professional. Instagram is Malliyu, M-E-L-L-I-E-Y-U. Hasn't changed since 10 years. So I've kind of just stuck with that um, URL. And then Facebook is just Malliyu Official. So I'm on, I'm pretty social and active on all of those platforms. But otherwise, my business pages would be MCO events. We create events for you. If you have clients, that's what we do. And Ego Expo is Australia's largest streetwear and lifestyle expo. So we're a pop culture of everything, urban, fashion, hip hop, sneakers, and things like that. So check out more. Yeah, if you're interested. Yeah, I recommend everyone checking out Melissa on all those platforms and check out her uh, her businesses as well. Thank you. Thank you again for coming on the podcast. Really, really, thank you for getting so vulnerable and so authentic and so raw throughout the whole episode. I really do appreciate it. No, I really appreciate the um, chat and this has been really fun. So thank you so much, Aiden. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stories Behind the Grind. Please share the podcast and if you're not already subscribed, be sure to do that right now. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you could do me a quick favor and rate and review the podcast. This lets the platform know that I'm doing something right and people like the content. It'd be a huge help and I'd be really, really grateful if you could. Until next time.